Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message done to provide atonement for humanity, atonement for sin. You know, the moment I say the word sin, I think that uh, that's sort of an old-fashioned word. You know, nobody uses that word very much anymore, and very few of us believe it to be true. And certainly when I share and I talk with Jewish people and we say, why do we need Jesus? And we talk about sin or whatever might come up. The question is, is sin real? I mean, we all make mistakes. We all uh, have errors in our life. What is this thing about sin? Well, Yom Kippur is written about in the book of Leviticus. And I'd like to draw your attention to this passage. It's a very long passage. I don't want to read it all. But in Leviticus chapter 16... Aaron is told what he and the subsequent high priests are to do in order to deal with this thing called sin. In this one chapter alone, interestingly enough, about 15 or 16 times the word sin appears. This is really a Hebrew concept. This is a biblical term. And in addition to the times or the amount of times you read the word sin, you'll read about trespasses in this chapter. And you'll also read about uncleanness in this passage. The concern is that individuals would be made right with God, and this thing called sin has gotten in the way of our being united to the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in chapter 16, God has made provision for his people. And he tells them that once a year, the high priest alone after going through a variety of stages of preparation, can then only enter into the very holy of holies in the temple. So in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, and on Rosh Hashanah, we talked about Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. Later in Israel's history would be constructed the temple. Solomon would build the temple. David, his father, would uh, purchase the territory, the land upon which the temple would later stand. And when that temple was built, modeled after the the tabernacle, the instructions for which were given by Moses to the people of Israel in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, The tabernacle itself, the temple proper, had two sections to it. The holy place and the holy of holies. And the holy place had three objects in it. It had the table of showbread or the table of bread of presence is what that word refers to. And that bread was to remind Israel 
of God's provisions for his people. So every morning, 12 loaves were to be changed and placed on the table to remind Israel, although all Israel couldn't see it, only the priests that were on duty to serve there would see it, but it represented God's provision to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on the opposite side, when one entered into the holy place, was the seven-branched menorah. We light the seven-branched menorah to remind us of that particular menorah, which represented the dwelling presence of God among his people. We recite Isaiah chapter 11 because in Isaiah chapter 11 is the promise of the coming Messiah upon whom the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit would rest. And so we recite those passages to remind us that we've come here to worship the light of the world, the one who's a light to lighten the Gentiles, according to Isaiah chapter 11. And so we light the candles to remind us of Messiah who dwells in our midst. And then front and center, but toward the back of the holy place, was the altar of incense. The incense represented the prayers of the Jewish people. It was lit morning and evening. And as the smoke rose up, it represented Israel's prayers that would come before the throne of God's grace and would be like a blessing, a pleasing aroma to him. For the Lord loves the prayers of his people. And behind the altar of incense was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And so in Leviticus chapter 16, Aaron was told, Moses is instructing the people of Israel that only once a year, on this particular occasion, only one individual among all the people of Israel, the high priest, and only after going through a barrage of preparations could he enter into the Holy of Holies. All of this was to signify not that there was access to God, but rather there was no access to God. That getting into God's very presence was a difficult thing, not an easy thing. And the thing that makes it difficult for us to enter into the presence of God is our sin which separates us from Him. And that's why on this occasion, God has set apart a very solemn occasion for Israel to reflect on their sin, for that's what's prohibiting them from entering into the presence of God, and the extent to which God must go in order to provide provision for us to enter. And so in Leviticus 16, over and over again, we read of these preparations. The high priest had to wear certain garments at the beginning of the entrance into the Holy of Holies. He was to set apart a number of animals to be sacrificed. One for him and for his family. Another for the people of Israel. And another that would then be what is referred to as a scapegoat that would take the sin of Israel far from her symbolically. And so the high priest would put on these linen garments would go through a litany of preparations through these ritual baths and then to offer the sacrifice for he and his family. He would then take a basin and would put some blood into this, uh, I don't know, little bowl that he would take with him. And he was to use his index finger. And as he prepared to enter into the Holy of Holies, he would then dip his finger into that bowl of blood from the animal sacrifice. And he would sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat, which was an ark that was inside the Holy of Holies. 
It was meant to cleanse it because unholy people are standing before it, the people of Israel. And so now it needed cleansing. And this is the manner in which God had orchestrated the cleansing to take place. He was also to take some of that blood and to sprinkle it on the altar of incense, on the items in the holy place. And then he was to take another lamb and it would be sacrificed for the people of Israel. And then he would change his garments, take another bath, put on different ritual garments, and another animal was brought before him upon which he placed his hands. And as he placed his hands on the head of that animal, he would confess the sins of Israel. And as he confessed those sins, one was then uh, determined to take that lamb and to escort it out of the temple grounds, out into the wilderness to be led and ultimately to die. To carry the sins of the people, as it were, and to make expiation or to bring cleansing to the people of Israel through this process of atonement. I remember years ago, someone speaking on this talked about atonement is an at-one-ment. It's the mechanism by which God enables us to be united and joined to the Lord. But in Leviticus chapter 16, as this passage draws to a close, God speaks to Aaron and says to him, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. And that has become understood by the rabbis to speak of fasting doesn't really say anywhere that they are to fast, but this idea of affliction, the rabbis interpreted to mean to fast. And so they say, you afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever, and the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year. And here's the reason, because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. The big question, the big thought that comes to mind is, number one, what is this thing, sin, that is so serious that we have to go through such uh, a, a concourse of traditions in order to address it? Sin first props up in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. It's there that God creates man and woman. And in the garden in which he placed man and woman, he had given one commandment. He had told them that they could enjoy the entirety of God's creation. They could eat from any tree that they would like. They can eat from any fruit, any vegetable that they would like. They could travel wherever they would go. They would like to go. They could smell anything they wanted to smell. They could experience whatever they'd like to experience in God's creation. Later, when he gives the law, he gives 613 commandments. But here in Genesis, he gives one. And the one commandment he gives is not to partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was nothing magical about that fruit. There was nothing unique about the tree. It was simply an arbitrary, in my 
uh, my expectation. Just an arbitrary command. This is to test your allegiance to me. For God does test his servants. He does test those that he calls unto himself. The test is meant to bring out the best in us, not the worst. And that's what God had intended for Adam and Eve to manifest. The goodness of God in which he had created him. Remember, he created man and woman in his own image. And so now they have opportunity to reflect the image of God by refraining from one thing in the entire garden, which was not to eat from this particular fruit. It was not the fruit that had any consequence on them. It was the commandment that was disobeyed. And so, ah, now we know what sin is. Sin is disobedience to God. That's all. That's what it is. It's failure to live unto God in accordance with his commands and in accordance with his glory. It's a deviation from the very character of God himself, and I would dare say the very image of God in which or with which he had created us. So sin is a violation. It's a rebellion. It's a distortion of what we were intended to be from the very beginning. We are nevertheless a glorious people. Human beings are unique among all of God's creation, created in his image. We are a wonderful creation, even in our distorted, fallen state. Imagine what we were like, or I should say, what Adam and Eve were like, who were not distorted until their sin. And then imagine what one day we will be if we have the atonement of God applied to our lives and to our heart, because one day we will be made glorious. And it says we will stand before the Lord and we will see him as he is. And we won't cower in front of him, but rather we will glorify him and we will praise him and we will honor him. Atonement is meant to provide a means by which we can stand before God. But it's not merely God saying, okay, I forgive you. Atonement does not work that way, as we see here in Leviticus chapter 16, because number one, there needs to be a penalty paid for the death that we've inherited. This is what God said in Genesis, the day that you eat of the fruit dying, it says in the Hebrew, you shall surely die. The consequence of sin is death. And last we counted, we're we're batting a thousand. Everyone that comes into this world dies. Why is that? It's because we are fallen. And we are fallen because of sin. And this is what God had told us. But there is a way to be spared the consequences of death. For there's more than just one kind of death in the Bible. There's physical death in which we all grow older, we all deteriorate, and we all one day will die. But there's another kind of death that you and I are not as sensitive to or aware of. It's an internal death. It's a spiritual death. It's an alienation from God. It is ultimately a separation from him. And so God has made provision for us to be united to him and ultimately our bodies to be resurrected and changed so as to no longer ever die. That's why Paul and others, and even in the Hebrew Scriptures, it talks about this mortal putting on immortality and this perishable putting on the imperishable. But what is at stake here? Scripture tells us, first of all, that a penalty, a sacrifice, had to be paid in order for the penalty to be met. 
The penalty is death. And so what do you read in Leviticus 16 and all throughout the Mosaic Law? The need for a sacrifice, for a blood atonement, for death to be experienced. But all of the deaths that you read about here are temporary. They're temporary because every year, we're told, this is a statue forever. Every year, this offering had to be offered. Why? Because when it was offered, it never fully took care of the sin that we had experienced. So what must we do? There must be an offering that would come that would take away sin, not merely temporarily cover our sin. That's what the scriptures speak about over and over again. In fact, on Yom Kippur, I oftentimes I'm looking at Isaiah 53, rereading it, and I want to draw attention there. But I have a wonderful volume that was a gift to me that's entitled The 53rd Chapter of Isaiah According to the Jewish Interpreters. And so I read different ones now and again. Let me read you something from this Jewish writer. This is a fellow by the name of Yefeth ben Ali. He was a Karaite Jew, took the Bible very literally, in other words. He was a commentator of the Bible. And he lived during the time of the golden age of Karaism. That was around the 10th century, which is about the time of the Crusades in Europe. He was from Iraq. That's why Ben Ali was from Iraq. And the medieval Jewish philosopher, commentator, and scholar, Abraham Ibn Ezra, was so enamored with this man's writings that when he wrote his commentary on the minor prophets, he quoted him over 40 times. And so he loved this man's writing. It's very interesting as I was reading this, he starts out his commentary on Isaiah 52, 53. He starts by saying, the commentators differ concerning this section. He says, Saja, another great writer of of, uh, centuries ago, this is what he says, that great commentator, he says, lost his senses in applying it to the prophets generally or according to some authorities in supposing that Isaiah 53 referred to Jeremiah in particular. He says, and these guys don't pull any punches, right? He says, his explanation is not indeed of a kind towards which anyone would feel attracted. And we shall show the manner in which it may be refuted. For this man attempted the task of interpreting the book of the prophets upon a plan of evolving their meaning out of his own head and consequently failed to arrive at any consistent view. Then he goes on to say, as to myself, He says, I am inclined to regard it as alluding to the Messiah and as opening with a description of his condition in exile from the time of his birth to his ascension to the throne. And his whole commentary is how he understands Messiah in Isaiah 53. Now, the reason why Isaiah 53 is so important and why so many commentators took time to reflect on it, and why I want to draw your attention to this prophet, is because Isaiah 53 is all about the atonement. And on this day of atonement, when, just for the sake of of argument, there has not been a temple for over 2,000 years. I mean, what I read to you in Leviticus 16 had to do with the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple when it stood. But since the Romans' invasion of Israel in 63 B.C. and its destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., there has not been a temple in Jerusalem. 
And so whatever God required in Leviticus 16, Jewish people have not been able to observe since that time. So the big question then is, how is atonement provided for us? This man's going to tell us Messiah is the one we're to look forward to to provide atonement. I think he's right. And I think that's what the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, were telling those who would read it. That atonement has been provided, that need not be, nor can be repeated, and is essential because the atonements of the past era were only temporary. And over the last 2,000 years, there has been no atonement provided for Israel. So what is going on in our history? Isaiah 53 is a passage that tells us that one would come on the scene of history who would provide for us the atonement that only these other atonements prefigured and anticipated. Now, I don't want to read the whole chapter, but let me just point out a couple of things about this passage. First of all, the text tells us he was despised. He was rejected by men. It says a man of sorrows is the one about which he is speaking, and he was acquainted with suffering. So much so, he says, that he was one from men from whom men hid themselves, for he was so despised and was esteemed. But here's the point that he goes on to say. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And by the way, the word there in the Hebrew literally means pierced through. Some translations say he was wounded. It doesn't mean wounded. It's a very specific term that speaks of the violence that he would experience so as to carry our transgressions, which is another interesting phrase. He says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What an amazing passage that is stated by the prophet, that by what he has done, something has been conferred to us that enables us to experience a healing. He's not talking about a physical healing. He's talking about a greater healing, which is a healing of the soul. A healing of the soul that can unite us to God and can enable us to triumph over sin. By the way, these are biblical ideas. This idea of being united to God is what the scriptures mean when it talks about reconciliation. To be restored unto God, for we are alienated from Him. The idea of being able to triumph over our sin, as Leviticus 16 is desirous of, is what redemption is all about. Redemption means to be brought into God's family. But that means a conferring of God's presence in our hearts and minds that we would live for Him. And that we would no longer be in bondage to sin, but we would be freed from that bondage so that we could live successfully and prosperously and joyously before the living God and in the world in which we live. These are very broad concepts that Scripture draws our attention to. Now, when he speaks about this woundedness, it's really interesting stuff that this commentator has to say. He says, I... And here I think it is necessary to pause for a few moments in order to explain why God caused these sicknesses to attach themselves to the Messiah for the sake of Israel. I mean, isn't that amazing that this Jewish writer is saying this is what Isaiah is talking about? 
And here I think it's necessary to pause. What he's saying is this is so unbelievable that we need to step back a moment, reflect on this, and to think about this. Because he says, why would God cause all of these sicknesses, all of this pain, all this suffering to attach themselves to the Messiah? And he says specifically, for the sake of Israel. Now listen to this. He says, thus from the words, he was wounded for our transgressions. We learned two things. Number one, that Israel had committed many sins and transgressions for which they deserve the indignation of God. Now, when this Jewish man writes about the indignation of God, he's talking about the wrath of God. And so what he's telling us is, Isaiah is telling us, this one who would come, whom he tells us, is the Messiah, would bear our sin, which we deserve. And as a consequence, we deserve the judgment of God. But two things, he says, as a consequence. That we've committed many sins and transgressions. And two, that by the Messiah bearing them, I just can't believe this is in this comment, this Jewish man in the 10th century. He says, and that by the Messiah bearing them, all of the transgressions, all of the sins, they would be delivered from the wrath which rested upon them and being able to endure it, as it is said, and by associating with him, we are healed. God will indeed afflict the Messiah with longer and severe sicknesses. Now, this is an amazing comment because most synagogues, you wouldn't hear this. But that's where this man is from. And so why does it seem so odd that Jewish people would believe Yeshua is that one about whom Isaiah spoke? And so when Isaiah goes on, he says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, there's that sacrifice, that offering, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it says in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, a guilt offering. The Hebrew word here is an asham. It's one of the five offerings referred to in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5. He's telling us Messiah was an offering. That means he was a sacrifice. That means he was bearing the penalty that we deserved, which is what this man has said. And then he says, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I just want to read one last thing here that that he goes on to say. He says, "It, it was said above, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And the prophet repeats the same thought here, saying that God was pleased to bruise and sicken him, though not in consequence of his own sin, but for our sin. By the word bruise, he points back to the language of Israel. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now listen to this. The prophet next says, when his soul makes a trespass offering, indicating thereby that his soul was compelled to take Israel's guilt upon itself. And as it is said below, He bore the sin of many. 
when Yeshua came and Yochanan the Baptist, the immerser John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is no doubt that he was thinking perhaps Passover, Passover lamb, or maybe he was thinking about the Lamb of Isaiah 53, the one who would be quiet, which doesn't mean silent in that he would not speak up, but it means he willingly gave, allowed himself to suffer and to experience the horrors of carrying our sin that we might have life. That's what Messiah is about. To me, this is what Yom Kippur is all about. It's about the day of atonement that God had provided through his son that has come into our world for us. Years ago, I remember Dr. Daniel Fuchs, a Jewish believer who had written a little tract, a little pamphlet, and the title of it was A Day But No Atonement. And he was talking about how Jewish tradition deals with Yom Kippur. I suppose in the synagogues, we're going to hear comments about or messages about living a better life, determining to do well, to change your habit patterns, to pray to God, seek God, all the kinds of things that has to do with our attempt to get a hold of God. When Yom Kippur is about what God has provided for us, that we could get in touch with him. It is what God has done for us. And so I'll never forget, and I always think about this on Yom Kippur, that when I was at Tufts University and I was just interacting with some of the students, the rabbi of Hillel community up there had asked to talk to me. So he asked if I would come into his office. And so I came into his office and he said to me, you know, knowing that I was talking to Jewish people about Yeshua being the Messiah, he had said to me, what is it about Christianity? That's the term he used. I wouldn't so, so call it as such. But he was saying, what is it that you see about faith in Yeshua as the Messiah that makes it superior to Judaism? And because it was so close to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, I said, you know, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jewish people are going to be talking about the way you get right with God is through teshuva, tzedakah, and tefillah. Tefillah is prayer. And so what was meant by that is worship and speaking with God. And teshuva is repentance. means to turn, shuv, to return. Repentance, to be contrite about your misbehaviors. And... Tzedakah is the word for righteousness, but it means good deeds. And so I said, you know, that's my problem. I mean, I don't have a problem with those things in and of themselves. I just have problems with doing it well enough that God would look upon me and say that I've worshipped well enough, I've prayed well enough, or I've repented well enough, or I've done enough good deeds. How do I know when I've done enough that God now will look favorably on me? And so I said to the rabbi, I said, those are my problems with what rabbinic Judaism, not biblical Judaism, but what the rabbis are teaching. They're basically teaching that you get right with God through your own self-effort. You get right with God by somehow changing your life in a way that sin no longer impacts it. But the problem is it will continue to impact us. 
It takes a supernatural work of God to deal with sin, not our own actions, because we start the process already as sinners. And so even the good that we do is coming forth out of a sinful kind of heart. And so I said to the rabbi, I said, so all you're telling me is that I have to somehow pick myself up by my bootstraps and I've just got to get myself together if God's going to accept me. But I said, but that's not even what the Bible speaks about because we read in Leviticus 16 about these sacrifices, these animals. That has nothing to do with good deeds. It has to do with something that's covering my sin and something that's being done for me, not something I'm doing. And I said, and that's where the conflict for me is. Because if Yeshua is the Messiah, then we have the atonement, the objective atonement, the blood applied, the sacrifice offered that can not merely cover my sin temporarily, but can remove my sin and actually enable me to stand accepted before God. And it can do something else. It not only can enable me to stand accepted before God, but can have an impact on me by His Spirit to change me so that those things like prayer and repentance and good deeds flow out of a heart that's united with God and not out of a heart that's trying to gain God's favor because I will never be able to gain it. I have to receive it as a free gift that He offers. But He doesn't offer it independent of what he's provided. You know, it's sort of like a person on the street. You know, I remember somebody using this analogy. It's sort of like an individual who is begging on the street and another person, you know, comes up to them and, uh, and says, essentially, you know, uh, where do I get this bread? Well, the beggar didn't earn it. He simply received it by the gracious gift of another. Similarly, we are in need of a gracious gift from our Heavenly Father. And He's provided it in the one about whom Isaiah has spoken. And the one that this writer, though he may not have acknowledged Yeshua to be that one, he certainly has acknowledged the Messiah to do some incredible things that the Jewish writers of the New Covenant Scriptures tell us Yeshua has provided. And so on this Yom Kippur, It can truly be a day of atonement, not just another day of religiosity, not just another day of trying to do religious things and thinking that somehow you're going to be different because of it. I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, and I went through a lot of Jewish traditional stuff. And I always hoped, or oftentimes, maybe not always, but oftentimes hoped this was it. I'm going to know God. I'm going to hear him like Abraham heard him. And I never did. I just never did. And then when someone shared with me about Yeshua, all of a sudden, you know, I did hear his voice. And God made himself known to me. A number of years later, you know, when uh, I was uh, sharing in basically a Bible study group that we had in New Jersey, and there was a fellow that we used to call, or his name was Rabbi Tzvi, and he was, he was an Israeli from Brooklyn. And he lived in the Orthodox Jewish community. And he made his living by teaching Hebrew and giving bar mitzvah lessons and all of that. And through an individual that had run into him and started telling him about Messiah, he, not unlike me, 
had gone through all of these religious steps, but never felt connected to God. And so he now did. But he didn't want to go to a Bible study or a group that was near where he lived because the community he lived in was so closed. And he knew that he would be ostracized and he didn't know how he could get on with his life if that was to happen. So he used to come out to New Jersey to my study. And we became dear friends. And I remember we had the opportunity to do a bar mitzvah for a young boy. And so I said, Rabbi Tzvi, he's teaching him all the Hebrew stuff and I'm just sort of listening in and I'm there with him. And then we went to do the service and I said, so Rabbi Tzvi, remember you got to bring the talus and your kippah. And he said, why do I have to bring that? And I said, well, you know, it's a bar mitzvah service. It'd be a nice thing to wear. He said, look, I wear yarmulkes and talises and sitzes and I do it all the time. And those things don't bring me closer to God. Why should I do it now when it doesn't bring me close to God? And I thought, you know, it's very interesting, right? Here's a very religious, orthodox man who in his environment in Brooklyn was always wearing all of that because he didn't want to be ostracized. But when he was freed up, he was really being honest, those things were a burden to him. And so I said, Rabbi Tzvi, just please do this for me. <laughs> you know, They want a Jewish ceremony. They'd like to have it. They're not as religious as you. They haven't thought about these things as deeply. Just put it on, you know. <laughs> And so he said, okay, but I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. So he did put it on, but I'll never forget that. You know, I'll never forget that because the thing that was so clear to him was Yeshua in his heart, you know, and in his life. All these other things could be good, but they're not essential. And all these other things might be fun and beneficial and, uh, and delightful, but they're not essential and they're not transformative. It's only him that will transform your life and change you and make you the kind of person you really want to be and the kind of person God wants you to be. And to boot, you will have the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins and a relationship with him. If you don't know Messiah, don't allow this Yom Kippur to go by without having the atonement God has provided in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're struggling with things in your life and you're saying, you know, I just really need to commit my life to him, allow this Yom Kippur to be that time for you and always look back on it as the time God has reached me and has spoken to my heart. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we rejoice in you and we are grateful for what you've provided for us. Lord, you did not need to do that. You could have allowed us to remain in the state in which we were in. And you would have been no less just and no less loving. But Father, you went steps beyond. And in your great love and mercy. And in a way by which you could retain your just you provided atonement for us. Your Son and our Messiah, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, has come into our world. And as this Jewish commentator, rabbinic commentator, has so well 
stated that indeed, Lord, you have borne the sins of many, your people and the world, that, Lord, we might find forgiveness, that we might find joy, that we might find life, and that we would be united to the living God of the universe. So, Lord, even as we're praying, may you touch each and everyone's heart. May you speak to us, guide and lead. And where there's a need to say, Father, I don't know a lot about Messiah, but I've heard enough this evening that I want to connect with him. Would you show me more about your son? And if you make him known to me, I will give you my heart and I will believe in him. There may be some who have known you for a long time or a short time. And they're thinking, you know, my life needs to be changed. I'm wrestling with things that I would like freedom from. And I'd like to be released from the bondage that some of those things cause. I pray, Father, this Yom Kippur, they might find strength in you. And that your imparting of your spirit would be of such a kind that, Lord, it would change and transform and to set us free. So, Lord, we bless your holy name. We rejoice in you. And we thank you for the forgiveness of sin that you've provided in Messiah Yeshua. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.